Dear Father, just now as we consider the life of Peter and the way that you worked with him, I pray that you would give each person here insights into our own relationship with you and how you are working with us. Amen. Okay, I really enjoy, have enjoyed, just in recent years, learning about the uh, Myers-Briggs test. Don't you take this at the beginning of medical school now? So you all kind of learn about your personality type. And so, you know, this is speculation, but people, people uh, imagine that Peter was probably an ESTP. But there aren't a lot of medical students that are ESTPs. I think most medical students are SJs, right? But... Um, Anyway, so this just gives you an idea of other people that are thought to be of that personality type. Okay, people, you can see this is a very outgrowing crowd, right? Teddy Roosevelt, here's Evil Knievel, the thrill seeker. John Wayne here with the gun. Uh, Lucille Ball, Madonna. Okay, so, so it's kind of an interesting type of personality. And, and I happen to have heard many, well, at least two or three sermons, as well as many individuals, who have told me that they can really identify with Peter, you know, the extreme, extroverted, you know, speak first, think later, you know, kind of um, <clears throat> personality. And I'll just say that uh, I personally can't identify with Peter that much, that my personality type is in many ways uh, quite the opposite of Peter. Um, I am, let's see, what am I? I am an ISFJ or an ISTJ, I think ISFJ. But anyway, it's quite a bit different um, than Peter. <clears throat> and uh, But the point of this lecture will be not so much to identify with Peter, but with the way that God worked with Peter. Uh, the reason the personality types have been very helpful for me is just um, to, to recognize, you know, this is the way I am, this is the way other people are, and it, it hel has helped me not to always try to be like another personality type, and just to be comfortable uh, with who I am. When I took this test... I think they have 20 extroverted, introverted questions, and I was uh, all 20 on the introverted side, okay? So kind of an extreme. Uh, all the way through neurology residency, in fact, my biggest fear in life was public speaking, so I find it kind of interesting. I got into a position with so much public speaking. But um, anyway, uh, my wife, interestingly, is her personality type is the rarest type. When you look up people that are of her personality type, the first one that comes up is Gandhi, so I've always been kind of jealous. Um, of her. If you look at mine, I think the first one that comes up is uh, Herbert Hoover and George Washington. And I don't know. It's just not quite the class of Gandhi, it seems like to me. Okay, but Peter here is of this type of a person. And I think it's uh, so helpful to identify with the mindset, okay, not just of Peter, but of the people in general about the Messiah. And it's very clear the expectations that the Messiah would come to liberate his people by conquering the Romans. Okay, the, the ideal here was the prize fighter Messiah. And we could go through so many specific examples in the Gospels to show that this is what people wanted. Okay, they wanted a conquering hero, okay, not a suffering servant. And Peter, of all the disciples, has the most, I think, fire in this direction in terms of that's what he wanted. <clears throat> okay, it's very interesting here in uh, two passages right next to each other in Matthew 16. We have this interaction between um, Peter and Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, they answered. Others say Elijah, while others say Jeremiah or some other prophet. Okay, they didn't say who they thought he was, but well, this is what other people say. What about you, he asked them. And again, of course, Peter, the one to speak up immediately. 
And Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Good for you, Simon, son of John, for this truth did not come to you from any human being, but it was given to you directly by my Father in heaven. Okay, would it be hard not to have your head swell up just a little bit if Jesus said that to you? And then he would go on and say, and On this rock, on this truth, I will build my church. So Peter had really latched on to something you know, incredibly important, foundational about who Jesus was. And Jesus you know, appropriately recognized and said, that's it. Okay, but then the very next passage, it's interesting, the contrast here, it kind of shows the, the two pictures here of, of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And from that time on, Jesus began to say plainly to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer much from the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I will be put to death, but three days later, I will be raised to life. And again, Peter can't restrain himself. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because okay? again, that's not the kingdom that he wants to be a part of. Okay, The Messiah that would come and die, he wants a Messiah that would conquer and reign. God forbid it, Lord, he said. That must never happen to you. And Jesus turned around and he just said, this truth came from the Father to you. But now he turned around and said to Peter, get away from me, Satan. Okay, we're just we're in the same passage. You are an obstacle in my way because these thoughts of yours don't come from God, but from human nature. Okay, so Peter had an important truth, but he also had a very dangerous, uh, I guess we could say a trap in his theology about the nature of God's kingdom. <clears throat> Here's the nature of God's kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you want to come with me, you must forget yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. For if you want to save your own life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Okay, this is the direction that Jesus is trying to move his disciples towards. Not a me first. Remember, they're always wanting to, you know, can I sit next to you in your kingdom? Can I be first? And Jesus so many times is trying to tell them, no, that's, that's not what my kingdom is like. Okay, maybe one other example on the Mount of Transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. As they looked on, a change came over Jesus and his clothes became shining white, whiter than anyone in the world could wash them. And then the three disciples saw Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And again, Peter, he just, you know, he's got to say something. And he spoke up and he said to Jesus, Teacher, how good it is that we are here. We will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He and the others were so frightened that he did not know what to say. And if we read this in Luke, it says he did not really know what he was saying. He just is kind of talking. Okay? And then a cloud appeared and covered them in its shadow, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my own dear son. Listen to him. Um, an interpretation I heard a few years ago of this that I really like <clears throat> is that, you know, for Peter, wanting a kingdom of power so much that seeing Jesus light up in power, seeing Moses and Elijah all right there on the mountain, that this must have been something that he wanted very much. I mean, he, it was kind of like, uh, this is a Kodak moment, let's erect some monuments and let's start the kingdom right here. Let's make it permanent. So I think we can maybe read into this that Peter is saying, this is fantastic, please, let's erect some structures and let's get this kind of a kingdom going right now. OK, 
Okay? But we're going to concentrate the life of Peter on just a little bit in the upper room and then uh, through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what I find remarkable is after Jesus telling his disciples so many times, my kingdom is not a, you know, me first, up, top down kind of a kingdom. It's a kingdom of service. That despite mentioning this so many times, here are the disciples on their way to the upper room. On their way to the upper room. I mean, he's, Jesus is just about to die. And in this, on this walk, an argument broke out amongst the disciples as to which of them should be thought of as the greatest. Okay, so we can see they just really didn't get it. Okay, even when Jesus is resurrected, resurrected and goes back to heaven, if you read it in Acts, uh, just as he's about to, you know, to be taken up to heaven, the disciples ask, now will your kingdom be established on earth? Okay, it just really took them a long time to get it. <clears throat> okay, so we have this upper room situation, of course. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Jesus warned Peter very clearly. And I think what, what I would like to also read into this is that Jesus knew Peter's trap, which was this false understanding of the kingdom. And he tried to warn him about it. He said, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. Okay, but he seemed to know that his faith would fail. Okay, because he said, and when you turn back to me, after you fail, you must strengthen your brothers. And Peter answered, you know, always confident, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and to die with you. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow three times until you have said three times that you do not know me. Okay, so Jesus knew the heart of Peter and knew that he was not ready to accept um, this kind of a kingdom. Okay, we mentioned this a few times, but for me, it's, it's just such an incredible story. The disciples are arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. They come into the upper room, and I think Jesus is thinking, okay, how can I break through? This is just not sinking in. And so what he did in this context then, okay, in recognition of the power that he possessed, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power, and you'd think he's going to use it to do something, to shake them up, but instead, he, he knew that he'd come from God. He was going to God. So he rose up from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist. And then he poured some water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around his waist. I think so shocking to see Jesus, Peter believes to be the Messiah, okay, dress himself as a servant and kneel down and wash feet. All 12, Judas, Peter, everyone. Okay, this, again, not the kind of kingdom that they were looking for. And so when Jesus came to Peter, he said to him, Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? And Jesus answered him, You do not understand now what I am doing, but you will understand later. And Peter declared, Never at any time will you wash my feet. If I do not wash your feet, Jesus answered, you will no longer be my disciple. And so Peter answered, Lord, do not wash only my feet then, wash my hands and head as well. So I think uh, there's a little bit of a conflict here in Peter, but he really, he really, I think, loves Jesus. He wants to be part of his kingdom, and so he, it's reflected, but he's not ready to go all the way. Okay, so he washed their feet, and then Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and it is right that you do so, because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. 
You then should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. So the message here is not that we should have a, a periodic service in church where we wash each other's feet. The message is, this is the nature of my kingdom. Okay, the kingdom is spread by service. Uh, some have called it uh, towel power. Okay, it's that kind of a power that wins people, not uh, coercive kind of a power. This is what Jesus revealed. Okay, so again, Peter comes out here to Gethsemane with these two conflicting visions of the kingdom, okay, which comes out. So Peter, who had a sword, of course, the men are coming at Jesus. And I really like, um, you know, if you read it in Luke, that Jesus said, you know, when they came, he said, I am. It says, I am he, but the he is supplied. Okay, he literally just said, I am. And remember, they all just collapsed to the floor when he said that. I mean, he revealed himself to be God in human form. Okay, but they came to him. And Peter, now who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. Because, right, that's the kingdom Peter represents. Force. Okay, maybe this is the time when Jesus is going to take the kingdom by force. And the name of the slave was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I will not drink the cup of suffering which my father has given me? Okay, and then what Jesus did, if we read it in the Luke account, is then he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now just imagine if you were there, if you're part of this mob, you're there to get Jesus, okay, and this man has his ear cut off, and this uh, criminal that you're coming to get puts the ear back on. I mean, heals the ear of his enemy. Um, again, just another incredible manifestation, the way Jesus would treat someone like that. And I think for Peter, this is just too much. Okay, Jesus is clearly rejecting the direction Peter wants to go with the kingdom. And so all the disciples fled. There we go. So you know the story of how, Jesus, how Peter denied Jesus three times, but I think it's just helpful to read it. So they arrested Jesus and took him away into the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. So it's just interesting. Peter is so bold. You know, I will die with you. And here he's kind of slinking in the background, okay, hiding at a distance. A fire had been lit in the center of the courtyard, and Peter joined those who were sitting around. When one of the servant women saw him sitting there at the fire, she looked straight at him and said, this man too was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a little while, a man noticed Peter and said, you are one of them too. But Peter answered, man, I am not. About an hour later, another man insisted strongly, there isn't any doubt that this man was with Jesus because he's also a Galilean. But Peter answered, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And at once, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And I've always been fascinated by this um, passage here, that Jesus was apparently watching this. And at that exact moment, the Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. And I just, I kind of like to reflect a little bit on what do you imagine? The face of Peter, the face of Jesus at that moment. Okay, Peter had just you know, fled. Now he's betrayed him three times. Okay, what do you see on the face of Jesus? Of course, we're not told. Okay, but, but I think we could just make a great case from the whole life of Jesus that there was not um, anger at that moment, but, um, well, you can each paint your own face that you imagine Jesus looking at Peter. But they, they made eye contact. And at that moment, Peter remembered that the Lord had said to him, 
before the rooster crows tonight, you will say three times that you do not know me. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Okay, so it came true. So the question here is, I mean, we all know the end of the story, but just to imagine we don't. How does God treat Peter, who had a persistent wrong vision of the kingdom, and now he has so publicly denied Jesus three times? I mean, if we're talking about any uh, corporate body or even, uh, you know, an employee here at Loma Linda, if, if you're the supervisor and your employee does not like your direction and is always going against it and then has done something so, you know, publicly like this to completely uh, maybe slander you, and, you know, the equivalent of Peter denying Jesus, well, probably that relationship would be terminated, Right? We might expect that. So I think it's a little bit surprising, really, to see how Peter was treated after all of this. Okay, the first clue we get is the women are at the tomb. And um, this is actually one of the, I think, a good example of why the Bible is believable, why the story of the resurrection is credible, because this is a male-dominated time and culture, and I just think it would not enter anyone's head to have the men afraid in the, up, in the upper room, locked behind a closed door, and the women are the brave ones down there at the tomb. You just wouldn't make that up. Okay, so it adds credibility. So the women entered the tomb where they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He's been raised. Look, here is the place where he was placed. Now go and give this message to his disciples and it is interesting, including Peter. Why add and remember to tell Peter? Okay, the only one mentioned by name. Okay, I'm sure this was conveyed to Peter that of all the disciples, he certainly, I mean, Judas hung himself, but of the other disciples, he's the one who had just publicly so uh, rejected Jesus. So he gets, it seems like a special invitation. He's going to Galilee ahead of you. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay? And we're not, um, oh, then the other interesting thing here is as the disciples run to the tomb, then Peter and the other disciple, probably John, went to the tomb and the two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. These little superfluous details that we get in the Gospels are interesting, but maybe this isn't superfluous. Could it be that Peter was not quite sure? Okay, He's lagging behind a little bit because of what he'd done. Maybe he's not quite sure the reception that he'll receive when he gets to the tomb. So he ran a little bit slower. Interesting to consider. Okay, this one in 1 Corinthians, we don't have a record of this. Okay, but it's interesting that uh, Paul would write here that I passed on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance, that Christ died for our sins, as is written in the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised to life three days later, and that he appeared to Peter and then to all the apostles. Isn't that interesting? He appeared to Peter and then to the rest of the disciples. Um, I don't know. Maybe there was a special meeting that Jesus had with Peter. Kind of interesting to consider. Okay, but uh, the last part of the story um, here that I find very fascinating is the discussion that Jesus finally had with Peter. Okay, the other disciples are there, so this would seem to be somewhat of a public conversation here. And I think there may be some some very deep meaning to this. So after they'd eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? Yes, Lord, he answered. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he answered. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter became sad because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. Now, one common interpretation, which I think is true, is that Peter denied Jesus three times. And it seems like Jesus gives him a way to now endorse him three times publicly. So he kind of works over that ground um, in the opposite direction now. Yes, I do love you. Um, the other point I find interesting is uh, now there are no bold claims by Peter. You know, he doesn't say, I would die for you. I mean, he, he, he just says, you know that I love you. Okay, it seems like a different response than Peter um, has had in the, in the past. Perhaps some humility at this point. Now, the other meaning, and not everyone agrees with this, and so I'll just kind of share it with you and you can see what you think here, involves the use of the word love in this passage because there are two words here for love in this passage in John 21 that are different. Of course, we're familiar with agape love. I'll explain the meaning of that in a little bit. Um, there are several, of course, this conversation wasn't in Greek. This conversation was in Aramaic. Okay, the New Testament was written in Greek. So we, the writer John, whoever wrote this, wrote this in Greek of an Aramaic conversation. But the words chosen for love are interesting. Okay, so there's a word here, eros. You can kind of see uh, erotic in that, which is affection of a sexual nature. Another word for love that has more to do with uh, familiarity. You know, you have a cousin or someone that you see every Christmas. Okay, you enjoy seeing them. There's some affection there, but not, not really a, an intimate uh, kind of a relationship. Okay, one word uh, for love that's used in this passage is phileo. You know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, this is a kind of a, an affectionate, sentimental, sometimes passionate love, brotherly love. So it's a good thing, but it's based largely on the emotions and feelings. And as some have written, since it's based largely on the feelings, it's subject to change as feelings change. Okay, so another word for love, and it kind of goes back and forth in this passage, as I'll show you, is agape. And what is agape love? This is love in its highest and truest form. Okay, and let me give you some examples. Uh, well, first the definition. This is a love based in the mind. It has more to do with a decision than it does with a, a feeling or an emotion. So as Bible commentators have written, it adds principle to feeling in such a way that principle controls the feelings. It brings into play the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. So it's, it is so many times in scripture, when you just look up agape, it's a selfless, it's an other-centered love. So in John 15, 13, there is no greater love, agape, what does it look like, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So it's a love that gives and sacrifices. Some commentators, I like their interpretation here. Richard Strauss wrote, it is a love which keeps loving when, even when the object is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or completely unworthy. It gives 100% and expects nothing in return. And Greg Boyd described it this way, ascribing worth to another 
at cost to yourself. Okay, so these are kind of some of the ideas here uh, surrounding agape love. So the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved agape, the world. And notice, what does it look like that he gave? Okay, it's a sacrificial kind of love. And so the, the, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians, what is love? Well, what, here's what love is not. It is not self-seeking. Agape is the opposite of that. Okay, it is self-giving. So when we come back to this passage here, we kind of put in the words that are used. Um, well, just see what you think. So after they'd eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, uh, and he used the word agape, do you agape me more than these others do? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the, the word here, the Greek word that is chosen is phileo. And Jesus said to him, take care of my lambs. A second time. Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, he used the word phileo here. And so Jesus said to him again, take care of my sheep. And then a third time. And now Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Isn't that interesting? And at this point, Peter became sad because Jesus asked him the third time, do you this time phileo me? So is that kind of interesting? Um, here are the, the different choice of the words. I think it is possible that, um, that there is a significance here and that Jesus is saying, do you love me in the agape sense, in the sense of giving, sacrifice, that kind of love? Because if we, uh, well, here's maybe an example here in English. If someone were to ask you, do you love me? And the response is, yes, I care greatly for you. Well, why not say, yes, I love you? Why, why use something that is just slightly different, okay? And so um, what I think is uh, maybe uh, adds a little credibility to this is just what happens next in the conversation where Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. When you were young, you used to get ready and go anywhere you wanted to. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. And the commentary is in the scripture added, in saying this, Jesus was indicating the way in which Peter would die and bring glory to God. Again, is that an agape kind of a sacrifice and love? This is what Jesus is calling Peter to. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. Okay, and I love how the Bible is just, uh, boy, it's just all hanging out there. All of the, the ugly parts of the individuals. I think it's, it's uh, reassuring to us that Peter here, we just see the human nature that he turned around and he saw behind him the other disciple whom Jesus loved, perhaps John again, the one who had leaned close to Jesus at the meal and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, saw him, he asked Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Isn't that kind of natural? You have a peer. Okay, well, this is going to happen to me. What's going to happen to this uh, colleague of mine? And Jesus answered him, if I want him to live until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So um, I think uh, Peter has to go through some rough ground here. You know, he wants to be first, and Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is the direction that your life will go if you follow me. And <clears throat> it seems like the Bible is really, um, just invites us to, to grow up. Okay, if you read the books of Deuteronomy, uh, it's kind of like uh, you would speak with a child. Okay, it's the carrot and the stick. If you obey God, you'll get rewards in this lifetime. Okay, you'll have health, you'll have wealth, all kinds of things. And if you don't, God will punish you. 
Okay, and even in the Ten Commandments, God punishes to the third and fourth generation. But the things really um, unfold, I think, to a much uh, bigger picture. You know, in Ezekiel, God says, I don't punish the children for the sins of the parents, even though we've got that right there in the Ten Commandments. And here in the New Testament, a dramatic turnaround. The reward in this life is persecution. Okay, not a promise of health and wealth and all of those other things. Okay, you read uh, Matthew 5, the, the highest, uh, kind of the pinnacle of following Jesus is you'll be persecuted as I am persecuted. Okay, well, what happens to Peter um, after, the, after Jesus is translated? And, of course, we have Pentecost. And uh, people think that they're drunk, okay, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They were making fun of the believers, saying they're drunk. And then Peter stood up with the other 11 apostles and in a loud voice began to speak to the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, listen to me and let me tell you what this means. So Peter, and if we just read what Peter said here in Acts, he's a new person. Okay, and uh, they're arrested several times and released. And then when he finally have to talk with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, after talking with Peter and John, the members of the council were amazed to see how bold Peter and John were and to learn that they were ordinary men of no education. They realized then that they had been companions of Jesus. Okay, so there was a transformation. And, and I think Peter really began to understand that this is what God's kingdom looks like and this is the way we're to live in this world. Okay, but Peter, like all of us, is a work in progress. Okay, so if we read Paul in Galatians, um, have you read this passage about Paul and Peter? How well did they get along? Well, it's interesting because when Peter came to Antioch, Paul's talking, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. This is the message Bible, but it just makes it real clear. Here's the situation. Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews, but when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and and his non-Jewish friends. Kind of a hypocrite. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. So Paul confronts Peter to his face. Okay, how does someone like Peter take that? Okay, well, if we read Peter, here's what he had to say about Paul. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved Brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. So who knows when these books were written in relationship to each other. I'm sure someone's figured that out. But I find it interesting here. Paul writes about how he confronted Peter face to face. And Paul writes something, or Peter writes something kind of gracious um, in his letter. Okay, so uh, last verse here. Did Peter get the message? 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so gone is the worldly kingdom, conquering the Romans kind of mindset. And here Peter endorses living like Jesus Christ in this world. Okay, so next time we're going to kind of parallel Peter with the life of Judas. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we see 
in the life of Peter, how patient you were, how forgiving again and again, and how wonderful that uh, we see the transformation that happened in Peter. And just pray for that within each one of us. Amen.